From Los Angeles, California, this is Burncast and I'm the bomb. Happy Tutu Tuesday and welcome to Burncast. In today's episode, I speak with Danger Angel, who attended Burning Man in 1995 and 1996. She never again stepped foot in Black Rock City after that, and in this episode, we're going to find out why. Before we begin, a couple of news and notes. I just want to share with everybody who's written in and shared with me how sad they are to see the audio podcast of Burncast wind down. It really makes me feel good to read how much these podcasts have meant to you. Funnily enough, without me prompting, practically all of you have told me you prefer the audio episodes to the videos. In my heart, I totally agree. I think they're a better medium for sharing Burning Man stories because they require the audience to participate by actively listening and using their imagination to add pictures to the stories being told. But, alas, audio podcasts are way more complex for me to produce than video. Let me explain. Once I record an audio interview, the work really begins. I spend countless hours cleaning up the tracks, editing out guest stutters, meandering unfinished sentences, and also a lot of ums and you knows to make the interview sound more fluid. This is pretty hard when you consider that oftentimes these recordings are done in a hectic environment where interruptions are commonplace, and I have to decide if I can somehow cut them out, if they interfere with the storytelling, or if they have to stay despite it. Then, after I've cleaned up a track, I have to write and record my own voiceover and edit that. Next, I need to find pod-safe music so that the copyright police don't come after me. And then I mix it all down. The interview, the voiceover, the music and effects, down into a comprehensive episode, and then send it to iTunes. And finally, after that, I have to update the blog. I can't tell you how time-consuming that is. On average, it takes me well over a regular work week to produce one show, and this on top of when I was working full-time. I'm proud of the skills I've developed and the improvements I've made since I've started, and I also feel, like most of the feedback I've received, that the audio podcasts are better than the video ones. But since I started doing the vidcasts, I've discovered that they are so much more easier to produce. I mean, most video sharing sites like YouTube only allow for a maximum of 10 minutes of media, so I'm forced to keep it quick and dirty. I'll be the first to admit my videos are not cinematic masterpieces or visually stunning in any way, shape, or form. In fact, they're probably just the opposite, shot in poor lighting and filming conditions. But I want to share with you audio lovers that the videos aren't really that much different in format because you don't really need to watch them in order to hear the interview and you can still download them via iTunes instead of having to watch them on your computer. So give that a try. The videos are uploaded to iTunes in a different feed so just run a search for Burncast in the iTunes store and subscribe. And remember, it's all free. And while you're there, please leave a review in iTunes, hopefully a positive one. And thanks to all my listeners for taking the time to contact me. Now, we still have some audio recordings from Burning Man 2007 left to go, so it's not over just yet. Finally, before we go on to our interview with Danger Angel, I want to remind everybody that it's Burning Man season, and our website, www.burncast.tv, is updated daily with news and information about happenings in the Burner community. We've even got a weekly video of events starring Diva Danielle, and we're actively looking for events to be posted on our calendar. And if you throw in a couple of tickets to your event, Diva will give them away to our audience and help spread the word to our Twitter following, which at the time of this recording is 
over 4,000 tweets. It's a fun way to get the word out, especially since Tribe is not as active as it used to be. So check our website, burncast.tv, and follow me on Twitter. My handle is burncast, and also follow Diva Danielle. It's really fun. Okay, let's get on with today's episode. Danger Angel attended Burning Man for two years. The first time was in 1995, when according to the Burning Man website, the event became, quote, the most populous settlement, albeit temporary, in Nevada's Pershing County, unquote. It was also the year that the encampment became known as Black Rock City. Danger Angel attended the following year in 1996, but since then she hasn't wanted anything to do with Burning Man. That year, the population of Black Rock City grew to 8,000 people, and Larry Harvey created a committee to manage Burning Man. 1996 was also the year that Black Rock City suffered two serious tragedies. That of the death of Michael Fury, who was killed in a motorcycle accident on the playa, and the severe injuries of attendees who were sleeping in a tent that was accidentally run over by a car. In the first part of our interview, Danger Angel shares with us her experiences of her participation during her two years at Burning Man. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to explain that this recording took place before San Francisco decompression in 2007, and at that time, Tribe.net was the destination website for the burner community. Also, Danger Angel's young son was present in the room at the time, and so occasionally there were some interruptions and distractions. Okay, let's begin. So is Danger Angel your plan name? Well, Angel was my playa name, and that was totally random. It occurred for just a very odd reason. And at the Somar show before Burning Man, I had worn angel wings, and the theme that year was Helco. And my dad was playing Satan's lawyer. Satan was played by Flash. My dad was playing his lawyer, and we had this great theater moment. I was doing security, and I was wearing angel wings, and I walked up to the podium where the devil was. This is at Burning Man. No, this is at the Somar show. We used to have a a big show before Burning Man, and the man would be in Somar. Oh, wow. Would be displayed, neon and all, in Somar. And uh, I was doing security for the event, and... I had my angel wings on, and I walked up to the podium, and Flash fell to his knees, all dressed up as the devil. He fell to his knees and kissed my hand, and it was one of those great theater moments. But from that moment on, whenever I was on the radio, and it's a radio name, it's not a playa name. Oh. Playa names are, I have no idea where that came from, but nobody used to have playa names. We only had radio names. <laughs> and when you were on the radio... I was Angel, just like other people had radio names. It was given to me. Someone started, actually, I think it was John Law who called me Angel first on the radio, and then I was never anything else. You made a comment about Burning Man. Okay, first of all, let's establish how long you've been going to Burning Man and when you stopped going. I only went to Burning Man for two years, Mm -hmm. 95 and 96. I was a stage manager for Peppy Lingham's Burn in 95. I was the stage manager for Collapsing Silence, which was a Butoh troupe, which did performance at Pepe's Burn. Then in 96, I was the night supervisor for the Rangers. And I ended up doing all night shifts for the week before the event. And then I was like the fourth to call in an emergency in the Ranger handbook. So 
I was pretty had a lot of responsibility and uh, as a security supervisor and um, as a ranger in '96, and then I left in '96 and never went back. What's the story behind that? How come you left and didn't come back? Well, it sort of started with Michael Fury's death. I Can was, you let people know what that was about? Michael Fury was the manager of Polkaside, and um, he and Steve Coe and Jane were in Gerlach, and they had a couple drinks, and Steve Coe and Jane were driving John Law's van, and Michael Fury was riding on his motorcycle, and they went out on the playa, and Michael Fury started doing circles around the van, and they were driving without their lights, and he hit the van head-on and was mostly decapitated. So he was the first playa death related to Burning Man. And Vanessa, who is the head of security, and I had caravaned up to Burning Man, and we had a couple cars following us from Gerlach, and we went up to the entry to the playa. We had a little sort of ceremonial, made a line in the stand and stepped over it, we started driving down the 12-mile track, and John Law's van was the first thing we came to, and they came and said, he's dead, he's dead, someone's got to go get the authorities. And so I took the rest of the people to the camp while Vanessa stayed behind with Jane and Steve Coe and Michael Fury's body and um, waited for the authorities to so arrive. So you were actually present at this time? Yes, I was. I was. I and it was completely freaky. I had to go find Larry and say someone died out on the 12-mile track. I don't know who it is. I don't know what happened, but someone's got to get the police. Someone's died. So this was my welcome to the playa in 1996. And it was pretty funny because after that, we had a mantra in center camp at the ranger camp. John Law and Vanessa and Bogman and I all would say, we are no longer in the festival business. Oh. <laughs> that was, anytime something screwed up happened, which a lot did that year, we would look at each other and say, we are no longer in the festival business. So we had decided before the weekend even started that we weren't going to do Burning Man anymore. Because of this? It really hit home with us that someone could die at an art festival. And certain people thought that was okay. What do you mean by certain people thought that was okay? Well, after the event, Larry Harvey said to me, well, one death in a city of 10,000 isn't so bad. And to me, that spoke volumes. I mean, sure, if you have a city of 10,000 people, one death isn't bad, but it's an art festival. And even though it's the most dangerous art festival in the world, nobody should be dying. And nobody really should have that attitude because the people who die, they have families and loved ones who don't want to be told that their loved one's death isn't that bad for a city of 10,000. So it was, we had basically decided that it was not going to happen anymore. So... Okay, so you decided you weren't going to come, you weren't going to attend the event anymore, but you're still really active in the Burning Man community, which I find interesting. You, do you consider yourself a burner? Uh, absolutely not. I think the word burner is kind of ridiculous because that implies that one's only interest or level of creativity is experienced for one week in Nevada. The word burner didn't come up until 
years after I stopped going. So how do you see yourself as a participant in the community? Because you're very active. Well, the community, Burning Man was just one event in many events that used to be participated in by everyone. And Burning Man was a Cacophony Society event. A lot of people don't know what Cacophony Society is. (laughs) The Cacophony Society was um, a group of misfits and artists, and we did all kinds of crazy events, including the Santa Rampage and all kinds of other events, which are very exciting and still going on. But Burning Man was just one event among many. So we did lots of other events, and what I discovered was that Burning Man kind of consumed all these other events, and people's resources and energy and money started just going to Burning Man instead of doing all these other great events, which we all enjoyed, and people of, you know, various nationalities and economic statuses could also enjoy without, you know, spending $1,000 to go to the desert. But that was a choice. That was an individual choice. When you say Burning Man consumed all these resources, it was people choosing to focus their resources on Burning Man. It wasn't like Burning Man said, here, you know, give it to us only, was it? Is that what you're saying? No, they didn't. But because Burning Man became a focal point rather than uh, one event of many, Burning Man became sort of this black hole sucking in all this stuff, all these resources and whatnot. And people's creative focus changed from being, okay, let's do fun things all year round to, oh, I have to get ready for Burning Man starting in January and start fundraising for my camp and all of these things which I felt were really detrimental to the local community, that we had a severe lack of interest in funding for other events. When you say local, you mean the San Francisco arts community? Yeah, San Francisco arts community. But I mean, it became true of other places where Burning Man kind of became the central focus of people's year. Mm -hmm. And if you want to do a giant theme camp, you have to fundraise for, you know, nine months to get enough money to make it happen. There's a really great documentary, which is about Burning Man 96. And at the end of the documentary, they're sitting around, they said, we decided that there was one thing that you needed to have a really great theme camp at Burning Man. High credit card (laughs) limits. So, you know, it became this kind of exclusive thing, which If you didn't have the resources to put on a fabulous theme camp with all kinds of great art pieces, then you were, it was, became the art haves and haves not. Do you have enough resources to go to the desert and to drag all your art with you, or do you not? And certain artists just abandoned Burning Man. Brian Goggins didn't really do a whole lot for Burning Man, although he was, he was, you know, very involved in his other art pieces. But he does art all over the world, amazing pieces you know, civically funded, um, the defenestration project on 6th and Howard. So there are other artists which were really have, you know, moved beyond the Burning Man scene, but there are a lot of people who kind of got stuck into, you know, just fundraising for Burning Man. I wish that there was more in San Francisco and the local communities which is now happening with regional events, but which remained in the cities and uh, for the benefit of everyone, not just people who can afford to go to the desert. 
Okay, so you don't consider yourself a burner then. So why are you here? Well, I have a pretty unique perspective on what it was like right at the end of the glory days in 96. The Is this one when people say Burning Man was better when? You think that's what they're referring to? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Burning Man was totally crazy uh, when it didn't have streets, if you can imagine. You know, nobody could find anything. It was just random. You just had this random, you know, you didn't have, oh, I'm at, you know, such and such address. You just had these, like, random chance encounters because you were desperately looking for your camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> Burning Man, used, you know, used to be a lot more chaotic. And granted, you have to create infrastructure when you have volume. But the good old days, you know, there was no funded art People just brought whatever they could, and they created things on the spur of the moment. So you can't have the kind of chaos that occurred in 95 and 96 now because it's just too... There's too many people, you know. You, you need people to be able to find where the medical tent is and how to get a hold of the police. Well, I think what attracted me to Burning Man... I, my first year was 98, and the things, the words, the buzzwords that attracted me were... Danger, temporary autonomous zone, phrases like that. Yeah, and the, that they still play on that a lot. They still play on those words and play on the, you know, this is the place where there's radical expression and, you know. I, but how can you have radical expression when you have so many rules? That's a good question. And what it has become, and I think I'm kind of paraphrasing Chicken John, who said in a documentary, said um, they package it as chaos and art, but what they're really giving you is like rules and regulations. And they're an organization. They have to have insurance. They have to have firefighters. They have to have medical personnel. They have to have organization. God bless them. But it's the, you know, still marketing it as this autonomous free zone where you can do whatever you want when, in fact, you can't. Um, you have to stay within the parameters of your little camp address. And if you step outside those parameters, then the art police are going to come and get you. So things weren't like that back then. You just People just set up camp wherever. They just drove in. It, it was a much different sort of space. And there was fire every night, you know, there was huge, giant explosions, and people were doing incredibly dangerous things. There was the drive-by shooting range, and people were exploding propane tanks, and it was a lot more dangerous. And a lot more interesting, I think, just because there was so much chaos there, it was so random that it allowed for a lot more. You know, there was no deciding on whose art was going to get money. Everyone just brought their art and threw it up in the air, and wherever it landed, people looked at it. Now, for somebody who doesn't consider yourself a burner, you're very, very active on the Burning Man tribe. Why is that? Well, uh, I have to say that it's the most amusing tribe. <laughs> people are get so head up and ridiculous, and they, and it's also the most active tribe. Like there are hundreds and hundreds of posts a day, and it's just kind of funny. It's just something to do. A stay-at-home mom, and one of the perks of that is that 
when the kid's playing, so can the adults. Mm -hmm. So I just go on and laugh uproariously. And when the whole Paul Addis thing happened, it was like there were all these people for and against and, oh, it's in the spirit of and, no, it was arson. And just every time I typed Burning Man is a victim of arson, I just laughed and laughed and laughed. It just made me laugh. So You disagree with that? Burning Man was a victim of arson. Doesn't that make you laugh? <laughs> Burning Man is a victim of arson. It's like, how ridiculous can you get? Even if you say that with a straight face, your straight face can't last because it's just the most ridiculous thing ever. And I mean, back in the day, Big Rig Industries used to print matchbooks that said, burn the man early. There used to be a giant sign at the entrance to the playa that said, burn the man early. It's been a thing for as long as there's been a Burning Man. And people have tried, certainly, you know. It was mostly Yahoo's that tried, you know, local Reno guys and their pickup trucks. And they were like, oh, we'll burn the man early. But I'm just glad that it was done as some kind of pseudo-political act. For whatever Paul Addis, I don't even know him, but I think it's hilarious. It's just funny to me. And people are like, oh, it's a work of art, and it was dangerous, and blah, 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 and it was someone else's art, and people could have died. All of that is just silly. People made it, yes, and people had to work on it later, but it's Burning Man, and it's meant to burn. So I don't see how that could be a victim of arson. <laughs> it's just one of those, why not take the act as it was intended? If you take the act as it was intended, it was a prank that was pseudo-political in nature and had a point. And I think almost everybody I've talked to in person who was at the burn this year loved it. Even old-time burners, newbie burners, people who were ravers, people who were just partiers, people were there. I said, what do you think of the early burn? And they, oh, we loved it. We thought it was great. We thought it was so funny and blah, 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 blah. So I don't think it's like split down party lines as the old-timers who think it's in the spirit of the anarchy of the old times or the newbies who think it was a terrible act of arson and criminal I think it's, I mean, out of 20 people I've spoken to, only one thought he should be prosecuted. There are several people on Tribe who feel that he should be prosecuted, though. What do you say to that? I think they should think more about the other things that happen on the playa, which should be prosecuted. Like what? God, the numbers of date rapes. There's tons and tons of incredibly reckless driving under the influence. There are other things which well, are a lot know, more dangerous. You know they're actually giving citations out for, for driving under the influence. In yeah, fact, David think, Best got cited last year. I think it's great because our worst injuries in 96 were all car-related, including the death. So people think the playa is this huge open space where they can do whatever they want. But the fact is, is that people in large machines... And if you're high or drunk, it's just stupid. So hence the the organization had to create a bunch of rules and regulations then due to the growth. Yes, absolutely. And I know a lot of people in the organization who do emergency services. And I absolutely applaud them for what they've done. The Green Dot people, that was absolutely needed. We had to have people who are out there looking out for mental health. 
you know. What is that? I don't think I know. Even I don't know. Green Dot Rangers are people who have been trained in psychological crisis. Sanctuary, the place where people can go, who are having bad trips, who need some calm place to come down. All of that is so necessary because all of that before was just falling in the falling in the laps of the rangers. And in 96, we probably had 10 really good rangers for 10,000 people. Wow. At the peak okay. of the burn, it was estimated that there were 10,000 people. We were completely overwhelmed. And at that time, there was no DPW. Oh, so who built the city? Oh, there was no city to build. There was no city bell, and it was just John Law and whoever would come. It was like, in 96, it was basically John Law, Circus Boy, Chicken, Jerry James. There was a bunch of people who just were there and helped and had radios, but there was no DPW. It wasn't like rangers or people who build and people who did this and people who did that. Everybody did everything. And so we had... The only medical backup we had was rock med, and they were okay, but they weren't great. We didn't have the kind of resources we needed for that year. And that's part of why it was so disastrous in a lot of ways. But they knew that it was going to grow, and there were advocates within the organization. And there wasn't even an organization. It was just a bunch of friends getting together and yeah, trying to make was it, it happen. Still, was it an LLC at that point? No. Okay. The LLC didn't come until later. John Law, Michael Michael, and Larry Harvey were acknowledged as the three owners of the name. The Temple of the Three Guys. Right. Yeah. But they didn't... They... You know, everybody was just doing whatever they could. You know, there wasn't clear delegations of jobs, especially at once you got out on the playa. It was just like if there was an emergency, you just called whoever was available and have them come and help you because, you know, we didn't have the kind of infrastructure that was needed. And we were just really lucky. Burning Man community was very lucky that there were people who understood what was needed and stepped up and created it because without it, Burning Man wouldn't have survived. That was Danger Angel, a former Burning Man attendee. Just like it takes a village to raise a child, so it takes a community and a circle of friends to put on Burning Man. Coming up in the second half of our interview, Danger Angel talks about Larry Harvey joining forces with John Law, Michael Michael, and many other Cacophony Society members to take the event to the Black Rock Desert. She also shares with us her thoughts as to whether Burning Man is a brand or a social movement. Can't it be both? Let's find out. What else can you tell me about the time that you were participating? Was it, like a lot of people talk about how people are happy and full of love, and was it like that then, even though with that element of danger? Yeah, absolutely. There was a, I think there was an even, because right now there's like a promotion of the gift economy. That wasn't necessarily promoted in the early days. Was that even a phrase then? I think it happened organically. We knew that there wasn't going to be any commerce, and the gift economy was something that I think was not something that was a mandate, but rather an organic result of not having commerce. So we had a really great 
experience of that, people coming up and giving the rangers chai and, mm-hmm. you know, in the mornings. And um, we had that, but I think what happens, and I saw this also happen in the AIDS ride, which I worked for for years, is that something that happens organically then becomes part of the corporate culture and then is promoted as a benefit of the culture when in fact it was a natural spontaneous result of people being inspired so when you start to market something that had been a spontaneous response it becomes less genuine I mean, not that people's gift economy and giving out popsicles or whatever is less genuine, but now it's promoted. Now it's like, okay, this is what happens at Burning Man as opposed to it's naturally occurring. What attracted you to come to Burning Man the, in the first time? And now is there anything about the event that would attract you now? <laughs> I used to say that the only way I would return to Burning Man is if Larry Harvey got on his knees and begged me to come. And I actually, I've said that to Marianne a couple of times because she and I have talked for years and just, you know, kind of socially about the event. And actually, I was formally asked to come back to help with the emergency services in 99, and I declined. And then when Mary Mitchell left, she actually asked me, asked her, should I go to Burning Man and take your job? Because I kind of trained her. And she said, no, you shouldn't go. So one of the things that um, attracted me to Burning Man was the fact that my dad was going to Burning Man, and he was more involved in it than I was then I became involved because my background is stage management. I naturally fell into that position. And also all my friends, like everybody we knew went to Burning Man and was involved in the organization. And we just used to have all these events, you know, at 111 Minnow, we had tons of events where everybody was there. Everyone was speaking to each other and uh, friends, and it was great and It was a really fun time to be in San Francisco because there was a lot of creative energy and people were doing many, many events. And really there was electricity in the air about what was going on. And I remember in March of 96, there was an article about Burning Man in the Bay Guardian. Something that Larry Harvey said in that interview was that if Burning Man ever gets too big, we'll just shut it down and do something else. So even Larry had accepted the fact that Burning Man was not the only game in town. It was just one of many things that we could do, and the world of fun, crazy, wild, artistic expression was wide open. And we didn't have to go to the desert. We could do it anywhere. We could do it on 6th and Howard. We could do it in Hunter's Point. We could do whatever we wanted anywhere. It was a really exciting place to be. So I'm being, curious. I'm curious what he thinks is too big. I'd be really curious to know. What that <laughs> now it's <laughs> so who knows what it is. What's too big? And that was my argument with um, at the town hall meeting in '96 after the event. I actually couldn't attend, but I wrote a letter, um, which was read by J.D. Bogman. What I said was we should shut down Burning Man and let people start their own festivals because there was such a huge amount of energy generated um, from those first 10 years of Burning Man that if we had shut down Burning Man, 10 other things would have popped up in its place. Mm -hmm. 
But because of the way Burning Man was at the time, certain people in the organization couldn't let go of it. They had to do Burning Man. And... Larry has said, oh, I'm not attached to the icon, and it's just an icon, and it's a symbol, but it's not important. Obviously ridiculous, because his actions speak otherwise in promoting the icon as a trademarked item, which can only be used in conjunction with the Burning Man LLC. So the idea that we could do anything else and... We should go out and do other things. It's kind of a hot air subject. I'm curious. Larry Harvey did create the Burning Man effigy way back in 85. No, Jerry James did. Whose idea was it? I don't know if it was Larry's or Jerry's idea. I really don't. I know Jerry made it, though. Yeah, I know that. And Jerry designed it. I don't know. Why do you think Larry gets the credit for having come up with it? I think Larry gets the credit because he doesn't want to have a day job. So you think he took the credit? Not that he's an opportunist, but I think he was in the right place at the right time. And Larry knows his mythology. He's a well-read person, and he can really talk a good talk. I mean, it was originally his event, and Jerry James hasn't spoken out against Larry getting all the credit. To my knowledge, he hasn't spoken publicly about it, but even in 96, I got the sense that there was a certain amount of, well, how come it's Larry's event now? How come Larry's doing all the interviews? And how come Larry's, and not from Jerry, but just from, there was a lot of people. I mean, the only reason it's in the Black Rock Desert is John Law. John Law Mm -hmm. took us to the Black Rock Desert. If you talk to people who went to those first early events, it was a Cacophony Society event. It wasn't Larry Harvey's event. Larry Harvey brought his man along to a Cacophony Society event. That's my question. That is my question. There's a lot of people involved in how Burning Man, as we know it, came to evolve today. And I'm just wondering how, why Larry gets all the cred. Yeah, it's a good question. And the triumvirate of the three guys... Larry Harvey, Michael Michael, and John Law. Michael Michael and John Law were doing lots of events, and when Larry couldn't burn the man at Baker Beach, when Larry couldn't burn the man, they said, hey, it's Memorial Day. Why don't on Labor Day we take it to Blackrock? We've been to Blackrock. We think Blackrock is great. So it became, the event was originally called Bad Day at Blackrock, And it was a Cacophony Society event, and the man just happened to come along. It wasn't Burning Man. It was Bad Day at Blackrock. So those early events are so amorphous. And back then, the Burning Man wasn't the central figure. It was called Burning Man, but Pepe's Lingam had a similar status to the man in its burn. Didn't he burn his art before, the night of the man? They burned on the same night, actually. They burned on the same night, and um, like in 95... They burned the lingam, and then everybody walked over to the man, and then they burned the man. So it wasn't like the night of the burn. It was the night of the burn. Everything burns. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Burning Man, when I say it consumed 
our community. It really consumed our community. Like it consumed a lot of things. Cacophony Society. Um, you know, there was a lot of events that had happened, which no longer happened, or there are a lot of events which could have happened and didn't because Burning Man really took the fire, as it were. As we wrap this up, is there anything you'd want the Burning Cast listeners to understand about the early days of Burning Man? One thing I think that's important to understand is that it was so egoless back then. It didn't matter whose art you were looking at. It didn't matter whose theme camp it was. It didn't matter who was holding a radio or not holding a radio. There was very little ownership over what Mm. was happening back then. And what I saw in future years is that people were like, oh, my theme camp and my this and my that. And that's true. The org, you know, when it became owned by the six, they were the six. You're talking about the Black Rock City LLC. yeah, Yeah. I mean, you know, Harley, Will, Michael, Michael, Larry, Harvey, and Marion, they... And made Marion. Crimson Rose. And Crimson Rose, yeah, they... They took ownership of something that hadn't had ownership before. And in a lot of ways, you have to have that because someone's got to sign the insurance forms. But what happened in 96, it could have been co-opted by Pepsi. It wasn't. It was co-opted by the people who started it. But, you know, what has happened since, well, it's great. and People have great, wonderful experiences and perhaps life-changing. It certainly isn't the same and I would encourage everybody who enjoys Burning Man to go out and start their own thing to really take Burning Man and not pour all your resources into it not spend thousands and thousands of dollars on creating theme camps to create something in your community that everybody can see not just the all-white middle-class RV renters because Really, what Burning Man used to be about was a community project that everybody was involved in and nobody took ownership for. So, well, my, isn't that what the re, what Burning Man's attempting to do through their regional network is to bring it back to the local communities? Yes, they are. And uh, I applaud that absolutely, as well as what the Black Rock Arts Foundation is involved in. I'm a good friend of a member of the board there, and she talked a lot about that, bringing the art back into the community. But as an organic experience, I think it's better instead of to do a top-down presenting to Under the community. Under the Burning Man brand. Right, yeah. Burning Man brand, you know, the top-down experience is not as great as something that happens from the bottom up. A grassroots movement to create an area in your city for community art. That is a more genuine and probably long-lasting experience than the, you know, top-down, here's the event that you will have as a community, and here's the art that we will fund as an organization. I'm all for the regionals. I think they're great. I wouldn't set foot in one. I I mean, I can't can't give money to anybody um, in the LLC. I just can't do it. But I still encourage people to create their own thing because nothing is going to be as exciting. And if you want to look back one day and say, gosh, the old days were so great, 
<laughs> then you got to create something, mm-hmm. you know, with your grassroots group of friends and make it accessible to everyone. Because when we used to do events uh, locally in the city at Somar, we were making Burning Man accessible. The Burning Man experience was accessible to people who couldn't go to the desert. So I think it's important to have a bunch of people who are willing to create their own. My last question to you is John Law in his blog where he talks about his lawsuit. He asked the question, is Burning Man a brand or a social movement? And I'm curious to know what your answer is. Oh, it's a brand. It's totally brand. It's a brand, although people who are involved would say it's a social movement because they are socially involved. But anything that's trademarked is a brand. And a social movement is ownerless. Nobody owns a social movement. Nobody can tell you you can't use the name of a social movement. Nobody is going to take out insurance on a social movement. A brand needs insurance. A brand needs BLM applications and firefighters and medical equipment. A social movement just needs people. And I think the social movement that the Burning Man community thinks it is, to really test that theory, they need to step away from Burning Man. What happens when you take away the fun fur and the feathers and the, the falsely created community that is BlackRock? What happens? If it's not set up for you, are you going to go? Are you going to go and create a city in the desert without the infrastructure being provided for you? Nah, probably not. There used to be an event at BlackRock called Desert Sightworks, which was just a bunch of sculptors who went out and put their art up. And they didn't care if people came, (laughs) you know? It was just, people just went and did their art without an audience, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Art for art's sake. For art's sake. That's a social movement. If you have a bunch of people who only want their chaos well-regulated with good services and (laughs) porta-potties, That's not a social movement. That's an audience. That's a spectator. You know, no spectators? Well, mm, I think probably there are a lot of spectators of Burning Man. Because it's not one of those places that anybody really wants to go if there are no porta-potties or EMTs standing by. Because it's dangerous and it's not fun to actually... Somebody could get hurt or killed. Somebody can get hurt or killed and you don't like to carry your poop in your car. So, you know, having that infrastructure, people need to real, I think, just accept the fact that they're going to a festival. Actually, J.D. Bogman made these t-shirts in 96 that said, Burning Man 96, Woodstock or Altamont, you decide. Oh, wow. I should have brought it to show you. It's I have it somewhere. But it's, I mean... And he wrote on the on the T-shirt after the event was over, you decide dead. <laughs> so they have to realize that what you're doing is not necessarily a social movement. What it is is an art festival. It's an art festival. It's a great art festival. As my dad says, it's the best art festival in the world. But that's what it is. And if you want to create a social movement, riot in the streets. Go protest the WTO or the G8 or go out and create some real revolution. I mean, take your fun fur to Washington, D.C. That's the place to create a social movement. I argued that Burning Man should be transported 
to wherever they're holding the G8 summit. That's where they should hold Burning Man. If they want to do a social movement, that's the place for it. Not the Black Rock Desert where nobody can get to and everybody needs to bring their own water. Social movements are much less organized than Burning Man. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming in today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. You have been listening to Burncast, a podcast spreading the flames about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. For more information, visit our website, burncast.tv. To contact us, please call 775-363-5861 or send us an email at burncast at gmail.com. You can also follow Burncast on Twitter. Music in today's show is by Solar Cycle, available at magnitude.com. A very special thanks to Lecter of NoSpectators.com for hosting these podcasts. Thank <laughs> you.